Um, I have been sober since May 20th, 2016, and I am very grateful to be sitting in this room tonight. Um, there's a lot of familiar faces in here, and this is one of the rooms that feel like home. Um, I got sober in, <clears throat> I went to treatment first, but the second, the last time I went to, to, to the last time I got sober, I got sober in, at Cherry Creek, the old, old Cherry Creek. And I used to walk to that clubhouse like three times a day because it was so desperate. Um, I was crawling out of my skin. I did not know how to be sober. I paced in my house all the time. I couldn't be alone. Um, and Bolden is one of those places for a lot of people too. Um, and I'm just grateful to be here tonight. So uh, I went to the AA anniversary dinner last night and um, I was sharing about it earlier. Uh, I don't know if any of you guys were there, but it was really beautiful um, to hear how they have paved the way for us in AA. Um, you know, it, when you think about the history of, of what it was and what it is now, like we're so lucky. We're so lucky because um, I think there were like seven people that started the first AA meeting in Austin and they posted it in, in like newspapers and they did all of these things to try to get to recruit people. Um, and it took them a long time to build what we have now, which is like, I think they said 1,025 meetings a day in Austin. Um, so when people say, I can't find a meeting to fit my schedule, it's like, well, I don't know if I believe that. Um, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to be an alcoholic, and I never thought I would say that. I thought it was a curse to be an addict and alcoholic. Um, I thought I had a lot of pity about it. Um, I didn't know how my life was going to be better or what I was going to do in my free time. Um, and the idea of giving up these friends that I had was really hard for me, too. Um, but today, I... I I wouldn't, I wouldn't change any of it. So, um, yeah, I grew up in, I was adopted at birth by both of my parents and my mom couldn't have kids. She had a, she went through menopause at 20. Um, they found this really great family that was looking for a child, um, that, that really wasn't, um, fit to be parents, but they, they parented five other children. Um, and I was the last. And so I grew up in, as an only child, and my life was very, very dark. Um, my parents did the best that they could. My mom struggled a lot with mental health and my dad was extremely avoidant and had his own trauma. Um, and they were like, you know, fire and gasoline. So um, I learned how to isolate pretty quickly. That was, my room was like my safe haven and um, music and, uh, Music and being by myself was kind of how I coped for a long time as a child. And through that whole process, what I, you know, I, I developed was this, if I morph into whatever you want me to be, then I will be okay. I was a fraud. I was a chameleon. I was a people pleaser. I was, um, you know, those were the things that got me through um, and made me feel safe and comfortable because I didn't know how to be me. Um, because being me was extremely difficult. 
I was not somebody who um, was picked first in school ever. I was, in fact, I was always picked last. Um, I was not the most prettiest in, in school. I was not the smartest. I struggled a lot in school. Um, and so I just, I felt like there was something inherently wrong with me. Um, everything felt difficult. I had, you know, this like chip on my shoulder, but nobody knew it because I hid behind a smile. Um, and I was whatever you wanted me to be. So, um, nobody actually knew what was going on with me, but that's how I felt inside. And I remember having my very first drink when I was nine. I was at, my parents were throwing this like New Year's party and, uh, my mom let me have a, a wine cooler. If for any of you that remember what those are, um, it aged me a little bit to say that, but I had a, yeah, I had a wine cooler and I, I remember feeling like, wow, I can talk to anybody in the room. I feel comfortable. Um, I spent the rest of the night going around like sneaking drinks out of everyone's cups when nobody was looking. Um, and I blacked out and my mom, I came to and my mom was like, why? Like, you know, freaking out because she thought she gave me one drink and I had that reaction. But really, um, I was in it to, to feel, to feel, to get the effect produced by the drink. Um, so I didn't start drinking at nine. What I did start doing is using other things to make me feel better. Um, and, uh, I'll get into that later, but, uh, I used anything and everything and all forms of people and validation and food and whatever, you name it, to feel okay. Um, and so fast forward to high school, I, <clears throat> I found my tribe of people when, um, you know, nobody else accepted me except this group of people who smoked weed every day, who drank all the time, who managed to show up to class and, and get by. Um, and I, I, I kind of managed that part of my life for a long time through high school and, um, it just made me feel okay. Right. Like I just, I felt a part of with these people. I felt comfortable. I started skipping class, doing all that. Um, and I just felt like I had arrived, you know, like these people wanted me around, um, and I loved, I loved getting fucked up. Like that was fun for me for a really long time. Um, fast forward to, um, I got my first job at this barbecue place and I had done a lot of partying and tried all kinds of substances and I won't, I won't talk too much about <laughs> outside substances, but, um, I got introduced to, to something that was, uh, would then be the, the ride of my life until I got sober. <clears throat> and I didn't know what I was doing when I did it, but I felt very, uh, alive after, after I did it. And I spent the last, the next three or four years, um, chasing that high every single day. Uh, Robin, when I got here, she, she, said that one of the first things I told her was that I was a classy crackhead. Was that the, what, what I told you? Um, and and I, I just laughed because I remember being in these groups of people, running with like questionable people who had no ambition, no life, no like rough around the edges, 
dangerous people and they I, I was told multiple times like you don't belong here and that offended me I was like yes I do belong here like why don't they think I belong here right um but I was this like bubbly personable person right and and I'm like in these sketchy situations where they're like what is she doing here and I'm like no I do belong you know um so so I spent the next few years just like pretty much hiding from my family. Um, I missed a lot of holidays. Um, calls with my mom were like, yep, I'm coming, I'm coming. Um, and I would never show up. Um, I spent, you know, bless her heart. Like I traumatized my mom. I, you know, like with the best intentions, my, I really just was trying to protect them from seeing me because I was an absolute wreck. Um, I couldn't hold a job. My boyfriend was taking care of me. Um, and I just had nothing going for me anymore, which was, it was as big of a shock as it was to everyone else as it was to me. Like it was the moment where you look in the mirror and you're like, what has my life become? You know, um, I never thought I would, I would take it this far. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on what happened because we all know what happened. Um, it was horrible. I felt hopeless. I felt dead inside. I didn't see a way out. Um, I didn't know people got sober. <laughs> I had no idea. And so when I had finally burned everything to the ground, um, literally everything I had nothing left and my parents intervened on me and and said I think it's time for you to go to treatment and and at that point I didn't balk I was in this chaotic relationship um I like I said no income I heavily relied on him for everything um all of my friendships you know down the drain and I just was tired I was just so tired um, so I agreed to go to treatment and I thought I was going to just kind of get this under wraps and I didn't really think that I had an alcohol problem. Uh, I thought I had a, a, a meth problem and that was it. And so <clears throat> if I could just clean that part of my life up, get a little clear headed, I'd be all right. And I sat in the first AA meeting and you guys when I tell you that I swear to God, I thought that they set it up for me. I was so paranoid. This girl was telling her story and I'm still like barely, you know, I'm still like, I just got out of detox. I'm sitting in the first meeting. I have no idea what to expect. And this girl is literally telling my story. I know we've all experienced that, right? Where you're like, what? No, this isn't, this is a setup. And that's what I felt like. I was like, they planned, all, they planned this. Like this person is telling exactly my story. There's no way. And so I was pretty skeptical. Um, but I just kept showing up and I kept listening. And um, these women would come and they would, you know, carry a panel meeting and um, all these people had light in their eyes and you know claim to be sober for a period of time and um I still was like I don't know about all this um but I kept showing up and I kept listening and uh I had an experience I did a fifth step in treatment and um for the first time this this uh victimhood was lifted this 
story and, and uh, like fantasy world that I had been living in, was, the veil was lifted and the world and its people were, it looked very different for me. Um, I left treatment and I went to sober living and I didn't stay sober for very long. I got in a relationship. I did everything that they suggest not to. Um, and I, I relapsed for about nine months and, and the whole time I was, I was just wishing I was sober. Um, and that's the crazy thing is that I wanted to be sober so bad and I couldn't, I couldn't be sober. So what was the disconnect? I didn't, when I was in treatment, I didn't understand step one, step one. Nobody, nobody really laid the foundation for me in a way that clicked. So when I was, you know, going to AA meetings high and, you know, throwing away all my drugs at the end of the meeting and I'm never going to do that again. And, um, 10 minutes later, I'm, I'm driving to, to the dope house again. And I just don't understand why. And I'm crying and, and like on the way, like, don't do it. You can turn around. You can turn around. Well, that's the lie. I can't turn around. I can't say no. And so I was like, something is absolutely wrong with me. <laughs> why do I keep doing this? Right. And the level of delusion I was living in too, I, I was going to this group in Bedford and uh, I'd been going for a while and I picked up a newcomer ship there. So somewhere in my head, I had decided that, well, they're going to wonder when I'm going to get my 30 day chip. So I, I got up there high, I got a 30 day chip. I was convinced that they were all waiting for me to get the 30 day chip. So, um, I did that and, but, but I, I just was baffled, you know, like the book talks about like just absolutely confused how what was going on. And when I came back to, to Austin and decided to get sober on my own accord, um, I got, I got plopped in the middle of an incredible lineage, um, that I'm still a part of today. And she laid out what step one really meant, right? It says, we admitted we were powerless over alcohol and that our lives had become unmanageable. So the first part of that is that I can't control the amount that I drink once I put it in my body. I have no idea what's going to happen, right? No idea. If it's in my body and I uh, like that, and I think that I'm changing my mind. If I go out and I'm like, I'm going to have two drinks tonight just two drinks. Last night was terrible. I'm still hungover. I'm only going to have two. Um, but I get the drinks in my system. I don't have control anymore. I have zero control over the amount that I take at that point. And then here's the real kicker. Once I'm separated from it, then I have this obsession. The obsession is, is the real monster, right? It's the reason why people are sober for four years, five months, uh, you know, 10 years, and then they come back to the drink, right? And it happens slowly or it happens quickly, right? But we have this obsession of the mind that once I'm spiritually disconnected, irritable, restless, and discontent, I've got to have something that changes the way that I feel. I can't, I can't, and, and it's got to be sufficient enough, right? Which is a spiritual awakening that the book talks about. But so many of us, you know, like, especially as a newcomer, nobody talks about how hard it is to hold on in the beginning, you know, like the obsession and the desire to use and drink did not happen quickly. It wasn't removed quickly for me. I was uncomfortable. And, and we like, we don't have bandwidth for that. 
right? But if someone would have told me, like, you're going to be fucking miserable for a minute. Like, it's going to be all right, but you're going to be miserable. Show up to meetings. Like, the desperation of a drowning man, you know? Um, I think it would have made it a little bit easier. But anyways, so step one, you know, my life is... I'm powerless over alcohol. So obsession of the mind, um, uh, allergy of the body, and then my life is unmanageable. I cannot manage my emotional natures at all period I still have a hard time with that today but my you know my life is unmanageable what they're they're not talking about like yes you know I didn't have a car I couldn't hold a job I you know you name it all of the outside stuff but I cannot manage my emotional nature I don't know how to be in a relationship I don't know how to respond in a sane way I don't know you know, like I spill something on the floor and I'm losing my shit, pulling my hair out, you know? Um, my mom says like, makes a comment at the wrong moment and I'm ripping all the clothes down off my closet, throwing a fit. Like I can't, I cannot control my emotional nature. I get a job I at this taco place and I can't, I can't get it together to show up to the interview. Like there's something wrong with me, you know? Um, and so I had an experience with step one where I understood what was going on with me. I didn't feel so freaking crazy. I was like, oh my God, there's, there really is like, like a method to this mat. Like there's something, there is something wrong with me, but there's an answer to this. Um, and so I spent the next few months working through the steps in, in a real way that I, I had never done with my sponsor. Um, and step two was easy for me. I, I saw all of y'all and that had multiple years of sobriety that were happy and free. And you said God did it. And I was like, all right, I believe it. Um, I don't think that's ever, that's not everybody's experience with step two, but I was so desperate for something different, uh, that I didn't care. You told me it worked. I was, I was on board. Um, <clears throat> Step three was, uh, was and is probably the most uh, profound step for me. Um, I'm going to read a little part out of step three. Uh, I don't know if you guys know Blind Dave, but <clears throat> he said something a long time, pointed something out in the book a long time ago, and it just clicked for me. Um, but step three is where we, where we learn that we are the problem. The only step that talks about alcohol is the first, first half of the first step. The rest is about me. Um, my self-centeredness, my, how I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, self, self-pity. Um, I step on the, fellows, uh, the toes of my fellows and they retaliate uh, seemingly without provocation, right? I do not think that I'm doing it. And that's, that's, that's just it is. Um, I'm constantly thinking about myself, constantly thinking about what I'm going to get out of the show, how I should be treated, if you would only do it my way. Um, but I have the greatest intentions, you know? It's all behind a kind motive. It really is. Um, I'm not just, like, outwardly, like, you're an idiot, you know? I really think, like, you're, you would just be better off if you did it my way. Um, so, he... In the, let's see, in how it works, it says, so what usually happens, the show doesn't come off very well. He begins to think, 
That's, that's the first problem. If the, if the problem centers in my mind, then me thinking is a problem. Um, it says he begins to think that life doesn't treat him right, and he decides to exert himself more. So, so I think and I decide, and that's what my whole life has been based on. I have a thought, I react, right? Um, and, and step three for me is how do I create space between those two lines? How do I create space between I begin to think, create a pause, and I decide, right? And that's where God is. That's what step three is. So when I first came in and they were like, you're going to surrender your life over to the care of your will and your life over to the care of God. I was like, what does that even mean? You know, like, what does that mean? Like reading step three every day or the step, uh, the third step prayer. Like, I really thought that that's what it was, you know, God, take my, you know, take my life, take my thought, like, it's not right step three is constant when it says we bring him with us all through the day right and every decision in step 10 and i'll get to that in a minute but in step 10 it talks about um or in 11 it talks about how we when we face indecision right like all of these things we're bringing god in um but so I had an experience with step three and I've had many experiences with step three, but that was the simplest way to understand it. It says when we sincerely took such a position, what position is that where God is our director, right? Now I'm, I'm living for God. God is my father. He's my director. He's my employer, right? I made a decision whenever I got sober that this was going to be my way of life. And it says that all rem- all sorts of remarkable things followed when we he and he provided what we needed whenever we kept close to him. And how do we kept, keep close to him? We write inventory, right? Prayer, meditation, help other people. <clears throat> and then it says um, the second the second term is that we perform his work well. I gotta carry the message. Like that is the essence of this entire program right? One through 11, all it does is prepare me for my real job here, which is to carry the message to, to all the alcoholics who are still suffering. And, um, and so, so step three has changed vastly for me. Uh, I have a relationship with God today where we just have like an ongoing dialogue throughout the day, you know? Um, he's like, he's like a friend of mine. And when I'm upset, when I'm pissed, when I'm, you know, whatever, it's like, what the fuck is going on? You know, and I just have a conversation with him. And that's what it looks like for me today. Um, step four, made a fearless, moral and fearless searching inventory of ourself. Um, I remember the first time I sat across from my sponsor and she talked about, um, I told her, you know, I had a lengthy inventory on my dad, a lengthy inventory on my mom. And I was, uh, for sure she was going to pity me after I, I told her all the things that they did to me. And, um, you know, I felt very justified in all of my, my resentments. And, uh, she looked at me and she was like, you are a shitty daughter. And I was like, wait a minute, what? Hold on. Let me reread this for you. You know, uh, like really, I was like, she's lost her mind. So, uh, I, I, I'm trying to understand, like, what, why am I a shitty daughter? And she, you know, pointed out different things like, you know, my, my relationship with my dad, I, 
my dad did the best he could. Like I said earlier, he was a very avoidant man. Um, he had a lot of trauma from his past and my mom was like, was like his father. So, so what he did was shut down, right? He went inward. And as a child, what that looked like for me was, you don't give a shit about me. You don't care about me. You're not interested in me. You didn't fight for me, right? Like all of these things, all of these stories that I created along the way based on, based off of his reaction to life, right? Um, because I don't see him as Danny Cobb. I see him as dad. And I have all these old ideas about what a dad should be, right? Um, based off of what your family was like when I went over to your house, you know? That's what dad should be. Oh, and in movies, that's what dad should be, right? It should be all supportive, excited about you. Their entire world should revolve around you, right? Um, and so I, I just, she pointed these things out to me. What were the nature, the nature of, of the roots and causes of my condition? Um, and it all started to click. And my mom, right? Mom was uh, a psychopath and she... Uh, you know, I had a lot of resentment towards her about the way that I, you know, not, not teaching me how to be healthy, right? Because I was overweight my entire life and that was a huge demon to fight. I had a lot of resentment about that. Um, I had a lot of resentment about her, you know, like creating this wedge between me and my dad because they went through this, you know, went through a divorce when I was young and, um, and, and, but the, the the weird part is, is that I blamed her for this, creating this wedge, but then I had this resentment towards my dad and felt like his, you know, he owed me everything he had because he didn't fight for me and whatever, but I shunned him because my mom did. So I just kind of fell in her, her footsteps. I didn't even know why I was mad at my dad. Um, I took on her anger and, and made that mine. Um, but, you know, one of the things she pointed out was like, you robbed your dad of a relationship with you from the time your parents got divorced, you know? I didn't want anything to do with him. And he did try. He tried really hard. And somehow, some way in my mind, I created this story that he didn't fight for me, that I didn't, you know, that he was the one who didn't want to have anything to do with me when, in fact, I was the one who completely shut him out. And so this process showed, gave me a new pair of eyes where I could see the truth for the first time. And, and it freed me. It started to free me up a little bit. I started to view the people in the world, the world and its people very differently. I had compassion in my heart. I had understanding um, for why my dad was showed up the way that he did and why my mom showed up the way that she did. And, um, and, and it was a really powerful experience to finally see the way that the world actually was, not the way that I saw the world, um, which was really painful. Um, so step six was entire, we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. So this six and seven were, have been really powerful for me and have changed a lot over the years. Um, you know, my first fifth step, it was like, I just did the quiet hour and I did the prayer that was in the book. And, um, but over the years, it's really morphed into this I'm, I'm making a decision to allow God to change these things in me, right? But I have to do, I have to take the action to change the behavior. I don't get to just ask God to remove these things from me once I've identified them in my inventory, right? Um, oh, I was a shitty daughter. God, please take that from me. No, it's like, okay, what does that look like to not be a shitty daughter, right? 
And I have to be willing to work towards those things and trust that God's going to change those in me if, if he's ready to change those things in me. Because um, there's a lot of things that I've asked God to change and I've tried to uh, work towards, but God wasn't ready to take those things from me. Um, and, and there's a purpose for that. There's a reason for that. There's, you know, there's sponsors that you will have uh, that or that you don't have yet that you will have later that you need to have those things removed at that time so that you can help those those particular sponsors. And I didn't understand that. There was a lot of things. I had a lot of outside issues. Um, one of those being, uh, you know, I, I probably shouldn't share this, but I had an eating disorder when I got sober. And that was something that I never thought I was going to overcome, ever. I mean, I had more pain around that than I did alcoholism. That, because there was so much shame attached to it. And so when I, when I would, you know, beg God to take this from me and, and take the action behind it. So I thought to, to have this removed, like, it wasn't my time. And I got really fucking pissed at God. And I felt a lot of pity about it because I was like, why did I get sober to have to deal with this shit? You know, this is so unfair. But what I learned uh, is that that experience for me has helped so many women. I can't even tell you. I can't even tell you. And I could cry right now because I just felt like, like, how could this actually have a purpose? You know, like, how could this be helpful? And, um... And, and, and God has placed so many people in my path to help in that area, right? And, and so that's just what we don't get to understand or decide, but we have to trust, right? There's these things and there's a reason for them and it, it's all in God's time and I just have to trust and stay close. Um, and it all makes sense, you know? And so... Um, Step eight. Step eight was making a list of all persons we had harmed and become willing to make amends to them all. Um, my list when I first, my first round of steps was very small. Um, I didn't think that I harmed very many people. And uh, as I, as I started to make amends, more amends came, you know, more people came to my mind whenever I um, started to take action. But I had a really crazy experience with step nine, as most of us do. And this is the, you know, they say that this is the step that separates the men from the boys. Um, this is where I actually take accountability and, and, and I acknowledge to these people what I have done, right? I acknowledge that I have hurt them. I acknowledge that I have um, done things in my, you know, because of my alcoholism, because of my self-centeredness that has harmed them, right? Um, I had an experience in sobriety where I had to make amends to this woman that, and I did this sober, y'all. Like, this is how selfish I am. I, I've done some, don't get it twisted. I, I promise you, you can be more selfish when you're, when you're sober. Um, and it's pretty gut-wrenching. But I had this experience with step nine. This woman had asked me for her help. She confided in me and trusted me to, to help her with... Let me see what, how much time we have. Okay. Uh, she was a hoarder. She, she was somebody that just, like, came to my job, and we made a connection. She was an older woman. Um, and, you know, we, we over time got to talk in, and I found out she was a hoarder, and she really wanted help, right? She really wanted her house to be... Uh, cleaned out and she didn't trust anybody in that process 
Um, and so she asked me if I would help her and she said she would pay me. That's all I needed to know. Um, and I completely took advantage of this woman two years sober. I was like, she's paying me. I got in there. I was like, this shit's taken way too long. Every single thing had meaning. Everything, you know, everything she was going to get rid of was a fight. And I was like, oh, hell no. How am I going to survive this? Right? Like, I, <laughs> you get it, right? And my precious time was being, uh, was being tampered with. And I was just there to get paid, right? As much as I put on this, like, oh, I'm, you know, this selfless person that wants to help you. No, I'm not there to help. I'm there to get paid, right? And those, like, the level of selfishness that I experience is, is profound to me, you know? And I dress it up as this, like, kind, gracious, loving, like, selfless person. I'll give you this shirt off my back, right? Um, not to say that I'm not that that person, you know? I, I am very much that person, but most of the time I'm thinking of what I can get out of out of the show. Um, so what I did is, is I started throwing shit away when she wasn't looking and, uh, I was like, I'm going to get this job done quicker, you know? And I started throwing her shit away in bags when she's like out of the room and hauling the bags out to the backyard. And, uh, I think I'm doing her a favor, right? I'm like, well, fuck, she doesn't need any of this. She's got like 10 of everything. You know what I mean? So I start bagging up all her stuff and. It's funny, but it's actually real. It's terrible. It's terrible um, because I, I make a lot of progress. I get the money, right? And uh, she calls me about a week later, and she's like, what did you do? Like, she had rummaged through all the bags in the backyard, and I had thrown away some really valuable things, some really valuable things, things that her mother, her dead mother gave her. Um, and it was... Uh, it was a really, really, really intrusive and painful experience for her. And it had rained, so everything was ruined. So she couldn't, she couldn't keep any of it. Um, and so going and making amends to this woman as a sober woman was, I mean, it was one of those experiences where you're just, you have to take the bit in the teeth. And she was like, for about 30 minutes, just let me have it. And I was like, oh, my God, I am so self-centered. I will do anything to get what I want at the cost of you, at the cost of your personal belongings, at the cost of your sanity, you know, I'll, and I'll do it sober. And, you know, I have, I have a bunch of night step stories, but there was something really profound in being able to just say, you're right, this was absolutely not okay and I breached your confidence in me and I uh, disrespected your things and I ruined things that mean mean a great deal to you you know and just having to say you're right um but there's power in being able to stand stand in your truth and own your shit you know um so yeah lots of lots of powerful experiences with step nine I had another experience with step nine where my uh, best friend in high school, um, and she was my best friend in middle school and high school, and uh, she, we were at a party, and um, I found out that she had slept with my boyfriend, and um, I immediately wrote her off, and uh, I made her life hell, and I told everyone I could, 
Um, you know, of course, I took him back briefly. You know how that goes. Um, and she and I never talked to her again. And uh, so when I went to go make this amends to her because she was somebody that I deeply loved that I that didn't deserve that from me, regardless of what happened, right? Like this is someone I spent years and years and years with. Um, that I just wrote off and uh, ruined a reputation. Uh, so when I went to go make this amends, um, you know, my sponsor taught us to ask three questions at the end. She says to ask, how did my behavior affect you? And that question's a real kicker. That's really where you get the meat and the potatoes. You know, it's like what you think you did to someone, what I think I did to someone is not why they're hurt, you know? Um, and so how did my behavior affect you? Um, is there anything I left off? And in those questions, she told me that, um, she said, I begged you to hear my perspective. I begged you, I begged to talk to you about what really happened. And I had to bear this by myself, but he had actually sexually molested her and I had no idea. So he, he was against her will. Um, and all these years, I, I had no idea. And she was like, I just wanted my best friend and you, you wouldn't even give me the time of day. And, and it's experiences like that where I have no idea what's actually happening, right? I have no idea what I've actually done to someone. Um, and that was another really hard one to have to hear, you know, where she's crying and, and, um, and, and what I think that I did to her is not actually why she's even, why she's even upset, you know? Um, but, but those moments are what, you know, where God steps in and where my life, those powerful moments of being able to hold my head high and, and just take responsibility, you know, um, for my shit. And so, um, 10 and 11 are, step 10 is probably where I find the most power in this whole deal. Um, I, I cannot stress enough, like how how important step 10 is it says continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong promptly admitted it so it says continued i'm going this stuff is going to crop up every single day where was i resentful where was i selfish where was i fearful um where was i dishonest right these are the things that rule me on a daily basis i wake up and i'm like you know oh i have to go to work or you know like um, I wake up in fear, you know, about finances or my boss talks to me the wrong way and I'm immediately pissed or, um, you know, my boyfriend doesn't do, you know, show up the way that I want him to or he didn't, you know, fill in the blank, right? My life is ruled by these things. Um, I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-delusion, a self-seeking. And so uh, step 10 tells us to watch for these throughout the day because they will crop up. And the power in this is that the moment I decide to pick up the phone, which is, this is where I create the space between we think and we decide, right? Like, um, when I decide to pick up the phone, it's like immediate freedom. I get an alternative perspective. Or I can sit in my shit all day long and I can, you know, believe the delusion. I can be driven by the fear. I can be driven by the resentment and I can be very, very fucking uncomfortable. Um, and, and so step 10, it says, hang on a second. Ah. Well, 
Um, it says, continue to watch for selfishness, dishonesty, resentment, and fear. When these things crop up, we ask God at once to remove them. We discuss them with someone immediately, and we make amends quickly if we've harmed anyone. Then we resolutely turn our thoughts to someone we can help. Love and tolerance of others is our code. Um, this this idea that, that helping someone else is, is the answer is was a really like I did I just did not understand how you know being in heartbreak helping someone else is gonna help me or you know if my parent my mom is sick you know how how taking my attention to someone else is gonna be helpful or if I'm about to lose the job and I have no idea what's going on or what my next steps are to be how how throwing myself all the harder and helping someone else is going to be the answer. I just didn't understand it. But what that does for me is it, it takes me to the present moment. And in the present moment, I have no problems. I have no problems. Right now, in this moment, I don't have any financial issues, right? Right here in this moment, I don't have, there's nothing wrong. I'm breathing. I'm healthy. I'm sitting here with you guys like I'm okay. So, so that's why helping other people and being in the present moment with those people is the answer. Um, uh, let's see. Step 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to pr- improve our conscious contact with God as we understood him. Praying only for the knowledge of his will for us and the power to ca- carry that out. Um, step 11 is, is, a, is a powerful step too. I, I get up every morning. Um, I do a nightly almost every night. <laughs> uh but prayer and meditation is is the most important thing to me. This is where I set my intention for the day. This is where I um this is where I connect with my creator. This is where I ask God like what is your what is your plan for me today? Where do you want me to go? Who do you want me to see? You know, who do you want me to help today? Um and spending time with God is uh has very much become the most important thing in my life. Um in step 12, having had a spiritual awakening as a, as a result of these steps, we carry this message. We practice, I'm sorry. As a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to other alcoholics. Um, as I said earlier, step 12 is like the essence of what we do, right? Like, and and it says we tried. There, I can't tell you how many sponsors I've had or how many people I go to work with that I never see again, right? And, and my job is only to show up and to try to carry the message the best way, the, the only way that I know how, which is, which is through my experience. Um, and then I, I practice these principles in all my affairs. You know, I, I, I just am like not the same person that walked into these rooms. I was not a woman who uh, had integrity. I, I wasn't a woman who was a good friend, who was a good daughter, right? Um, but I am all of these things today. Women, the women of this program have carried me in ways that I did not think, um, that I did not think was possible. You know, there've been, there've been, life continues to happen whenever you're sober, right? Life doesn't stop happening. You don't get sober and life's good all the time, right? People still get sick. You still have, you know, relationships end, relationships change people die, right? Like all of these things still happen. And, um, but we don't have to do anything alone today, right? And I just, um, what this program has given me is the ability to be a woman who does what she said she's gonna do, right? Who doesn't hesitate when someone asks for help. 
I might uh, not want to do it, but they're not going to know that, right? I'm going to show up and I'm going to do it because it's my duty, because the people that went before me are the reason that I'm sober today. Um, you know, my relationships with my family are uh, unmatched. Like, when I, I just didn't see... Uh, I my parents call me today my dad's an alcoholic my mom's an alcoholic too but my dad's a blackout drunk and uh i have a really sweet relationship with him today i never saw my dad drink growing up which is is a miracle but um when i got sober and i was in sober living he started calling me every day and he would be blacking blackout drunk at like 4 p.m and i was like what is going on with my dad um and I, I quickly found out that he was uh, he was just like drinking around the clock. And, and again, we don't none of us get to to decide when it happens for us. Right. My dad's 62 years old and just now crossed the invisible threshold of alcoholism uh, for the last few years. But, you know, he's called me multiple times um, and said, like, I'm I, I think I need help. Like, I, I'll go to AA with you. You know, I, I need help and I need out of here. We only have a few minutes. Is that, we have a few minutes, right? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, and, and so he has asked me for help, called me and asked me for help multiple times. Uh, he got a DWI recently and for the first time ever, he's never been in trouble before. And of course he called in panic and uh, despair and I'll do whatever it takes. I'll go to treatment. I'll go to AA. I'll do whatever. And, um, instead of being the daughter that tries to control and, and manipulate his experience and you you need to go to AA dad you know I just have continued to be like whatever you need I'm here for you you know and I have to let that go because I know what it means to be an alcoholic and I know that until someone takes the action and and, and takes the steps on their own like there's nothing I can do you know there's nothing I can do to um to will him into getting sober and to shame him into getting sober, it's gonna have to be on his, but I am, that's the kind of daughter I am today. You know, I'm I am just a completely different human being. Um, and I guess I'm gonna go ahead and stop because I know we have chips tonight, but thank you guys so much for, for allowing me to share. Mm -hmm.